Richard, Sicily, 
I should go in with my mom and go, no, his name is Slap Nuts. Can you put, I just want to see it in print. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Slap Nuts. But th this is one of those cases that I've wanted to, <laughs> I've wanted to cover. And I, and you know, now that I got this, you know, they, they kind of tie in a little bit. So we're going to get on with it. Steven Steiner was the third of five children born to Delbert. There, that's a name that needs to make a return, Delbert. I've only known two Delberts in my life. One was the brother of one of my friends, and the other one dated my mom. Of course, the one that dated my mom kind of looked like the Undertaker from WWE, so it was, it was really weird. And his his beautiful wife, Kay Stainer, in Merced, California. He had three sisters and an older brother, Carrie. On the afternoon of June 4th, 1972, Stainer was approached on his way home from school by a man named Irvin Edward Murphy, who had become acquainted with convicted child rapist Kenneth Parnell as they both worked at a resort in Yosemite National Park. Murphy, described by those who knew him as a trusting, naive, and simple-minded man, had been enlisted by Purnell, who had passed himself off to Murphy as an aspiring minister, into helping him abduct a young boy so that Purnell could raise him in a religious-type deal, as Murphy later said. That never works out. Acting on instructions from Parnell, Murphy passed out gospel tracts to boys walking home from school that day, and after spotting Stainer, claimed to be a church representative seeking donations. Okay, I just got a update that apparently my my information was wrong. It was June that he was kidnapped instead of December. See that? Okay. Whatever. After like, December 4th, he's walking home. Guys passing out religious tracks, sees him, and asks him if he wants to, wants to donate to the cause. Senior later claimed that Murphy asked him if his mother would be willing to donate any items to the church. When the boy replied that she would, Murphy then asked Dana where he lives, if he could be willing, and if he could be willing to take Murphy to his home. Well, you know, trusting child, he said, sure. And a white Buick, driven by Parnell, pulled up, and Stainer willingly climbed into the car with Murphy. Parnell then drove a confused Stainer to his cabin in nearby Kathy's Valley instead. Unbeknownst to Stainer, Parnell's cabin was located only several hundred feet from his maternal grandfather's residence. Imagine that. He was near Grandpa. Parnell molested Steiner the first night at the cabin. He began raping Steiner 13 days later on December 17, 1972. After Steiner told Parnell many times during that first week that he wanted to go home, Parnell told Steiner that he had been granted legal custody of the boy because his parents could not afford so many children and that they did not want him anymore. That's a usual, man, that's a trick that all kidnappers of children play. Oh, your parents don't want you anymore. They, they gave custody of you to me. 
Parnell began calling the boy Dennis Gregory Parnell, retaining Stainer's real middle name and his real birth date when en enrolling him in various schools over the next several years. Parnell passed himself off as Stainer's father, and the two moved frequently around California, living in locations including Santa Rosa and Campeche. Campeche. Whatever. Parnell also allowed Stainer to begin drinking at a young age and to come and go virtually as he pleased. He also moved from one menial job to another, some of his work requiring travel and leaving Stainer unguarded, causing an adult Stainer to remark he could have easily used these absences as opportunities to flee, but was unaware how to summon help. Police station. One of the few positive aspects of Stainer's life with Parnell was a dog he had received as a gift from him, a Manchester Terrier that he named Queenie. This dog had been given to Parnell by his mother, who was not aware of Stainer's existence during the period when he was being held by Parnell. Yes. How's he going to explain that kid? Uh, hi, Mom. Uh, you're a grandma? Yeah. For a period of 18 months, a woman named Barbara Matthias lived with Parnell and Stainer. According to Stainer, Matthias, along with Parnell, raped him on nine occasions at the age of nine. Yeah. Wonderful people here. Yeah. Sarcastically. Mm. Um, in 1975, on Parnell's instruction, Matthias tried to lure another young boy who was in the Santa Rosa Boys Club with Stainer into Parnell's car. That attempt was unsuccessful. Matthias later claimed to have been completely unaware that Dennis had been kidnapped. Yeah, right. As Stainer entered puberty, Parnell began to look for a younger child to kidnap. Parnell had used Stainer to attempt to kidnap children on prior occasions, but all the kidnapping attempts were unsuccessful. This caused Parnell to believe Stainer lacked the means to be an accomplice. Well, good on him. Stainer revealed later that he had intentionally sabotaged these failed kidnappings. On February 14, 1980, Parnell and a teenage friend of Stainer's named Randall Sean Poorman kidnapped five-year-old Timmy White in Ukiah. Motivated in part by the young boy's distress, Stainer decided to return the boy to his parents. On March 1st of 1980, while Parnell was away at his night security job, <clears throat> excuse me, Stephen left with Timmy and hitchhiked into Ukiah. After they were unable to locate White's home, they went to a police station. By daybreak on March 2nd, 1980, Parnell had been arrested on suspicion of abducting both boys. When the police checked into his background, they found a previous sodomy conviction from 1951. Both children were reunited with their families that day. In 1981, Parnell was tried and convicted of kidnapping White and Stainer in two trials. He was sentenced to seven years, but was paroled after serving five, which is like one of the biggest tra like travesties yeah. of justice in American history, which I think. He was not charged with the numerous sexual assaults on Stainer and other boys because most of them occurred outside the jurisdiction of the Merced County Prosecutor or were by then outside the statute of limitations. The Mendocino County prosecutors, acting almost entirely alone, decided not to prosecute Parnell for the sexual assaults that occurred in their jurisdiction. And I hope they 
from now, Murphy, to them. Right. Now, y'all remember Murphy, that the little dim-witted one that kind of helped get Stephen into the car? For helping kidnap him and poor man for helping kidnap White, well, they were convicted on lesser charges. That's California for you folks. Both claimed they knew nothing of the sexual assault assaults on Stainer. Matthias was never arrested. Stainer remembered the kindness Uncle Murphy had shown him in his first week of captivity while they were both under the influence of Parnell's manipulation, and he believed that Murphy was as much Parnell's victim as he and Timmy were. Damn it. No way to do that. I love that South Park character. Stainer's kidnapping and his aftermath prompted California lawmakers to change state laws to allow consecutive prison terms in similar abduction cases. After returning to his family, Stainer had trouble adjusting to a more structured household as he had been allowed to he had been allowed to smoke, drink, and do what he pleased when he lived with Parnell. In an interview with Newsweek, try that again. In an interview with Newsweek shortly after his escape, Stainer said. I returned almost a grown man, and yet my parents saw me at first as their seven-year-old. After they stopped trying to teach me the fundamentals all over again, it got better. But why doesn't my dad hug me anymore? Everything has changed. Sometimes I blame myself. I don't know sometimes if I should have come home. I Would, would I have been better off if I didn't? Now, I, I remember from the documentary, they, they showed the uh, video of the family there on like the front porch talking and and Carrie just kind of like you know kind of like looks away like hey I'm here pay attention look what I can do yeah. Strainer underwent brief counseling but never sought additional treatment he also refused to dislocate dislocate disclose all of the details of the sexual abuse he endured from Parnell. In a 2007 interview, Stainer's sister said that her brother did not seek counseling because her father said Stainer didn't need any. Oh boy, just push it all down. Push down deep inside and start drinking. That'll help you with your feelings. She added, he, meaning Stephen, got on with his life, but he was pretty messed up. He was bullied by other children at school for being molested and eventually dropped out. Stainer began to drink frequently and was eventually kicked out of the family home. His relationship with his father remained strained. In 1985, Stainer married 17-year-old Jody Edmondson, with whom he had two children, a daughter named Ashley and a son, Stephen Jr. He also worked with child abduction groups, spoke to children about personal safety, and gave interviews about his kidnapping. He joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints just before... Yep. At the time of his death, Stater was living in Merced and working at a pizza shop. On September 16th, 1989, Stater sustained fatal head injuries while on his way home from work when his motorcycle collided with a car in a hit-and-run accident. His helmet had been stolen a couple of weeks before, and he hadn't replaced it yet. The alleged driver of the car was later identified by witnesses. 500 people attended his funeral, at which 14-year-old Timmy White was a pallbearer. 
Harry Stainer was born on August 13, 1961, the third of the five children, and he had... Oh, oh, oh excuse me. But basically, everything that we just talked about. Right. And then, but Harry later said that he felt neglected while his parents grieved over the loss of Stephen. But when Stephen escaped and returned home, he received all the massive media attention, which resulted in the 1989 release of a television miniseries based on his experience called I Know My First Name is Stephen. The book of the same title was released in 1991, and Stainer once again felt overshadowed by the attention his brother got. When he was three years old, Harry was diagnosed with trichotillomania and was put on medication, though the condition continued to affect him during his high school years. The consequential bald spots led to him being severely bullied and having to perpetually wear a baseball cap. I was shaking my head. Mm-hmm. Although it is believed that his brother's kidnapping contributed to Carrie's sexual deviancy, Stainer claimed to authorities after his arrest, that my spoiler alert, that he had <laughs> become fantasizing and fantasizing about abducting, I can't talk, and murdering women since he was seven, prior to the abduction of his brother. Additionally, despite his intelligence being noted by his classmates and teachers, and being placed in accelerated classes, he continued having fantasies about women being gang-raped before he was a teenager. God damn! While his sister's friend was staying over at his house, he even exposed himself to her. Due to his... Contributions of drawing cartoons to his school newspaper, Daniel was chosen as the most creative student in his graduating class at the age of 18 at Merced High School. Man, your sister's having a fun stay over and you just walk in and go, hey, look at my joke, you know. Yeah, I don't think she ever came back to that house. Oh, oh God, no, no, no. You, you you can't come back from something like that. No. You know, it, you can't even make eye contact at school because it'd be like, oh my God, he's looking at me. Mm-hmm. Did I tell you what he did? He walks in the room and goes, hey, look at my junk. You can't just, you can't just flash. So you, you got to be creative about it, you know? After graduating, Stainer worked as a window installer at a glass company, which is where he allegedly developed a fantasy about ramming a truck into the workplace, killing everyone there, and setting the place on fire. And honestly, how many of us have not had this fantasy? Come on, folks. We've all had it. This fantasy is nothing new. You all get to that day where you're just like, I'm tired of this place. I'm gonna get basically a whole move like the office face kind of right. That too. You're sitting there like Milton. They could burn this place down. <laughs> you know, you, you you get to that point where you you just want to get in your car, drive through the front doors, run as many people over as you can, exit through the back, and call it a day. I know I've had it. 
that that fantasy is nothing new. Working people have had that fantasy since the caveman days, okay? Well, except then they, they would have been like riding in on a saber-toothed tiger or something, but you get it. In 1991, he tried to gas himself to death with carbon monoxide. In 95, he was admitted to a mental institution after claiming to have had a nervous breakdown and was released after receiving treatment. He was also arrested in 97 for possession of marijuana and methamphetamines, although these charges were eventually dropped. In 97, he was hired as a handyman at the Cedar Rise Motel in El Portal, California, just outside the Highway 140 entrance to Yosemite National Park. He found all his confirmed victims at the Cedar Lodge Motel. Between February and July 1999, he murdered at least two women and two teenagers. On March 18, 1999, the first of two victims, 42-year-old Carol Evans Sund and 16-year-old Argentine exchange student Silvina Peleso were found in the trunk of the charred remains of a of son's Pontiac rental car. I mean, you, you can't get your deposit back on a burnt car. Well, also you can't get it back when you're dead, either. So. Right, but an Enterprise isn't going to take it back and give you your refund. You burned it. The bodies were burned beyond recognition and were identified using dental records. Sund was also strangled with a rope and shot but was not raped while Peloso was raped and shot. A week later, a note was sent to the police with a hand-drawn map indicating the location of the third victim, Sun's 15-year-old daughter, Juliana Julie Sund. The top of the note read, We had fun with this one. Oh, he rhymed. Nice! I bet that was an unintentional rhyme, though. Investigators went to the location depicted on the map and found the remains of Sund, who had been raped and whose throat had been cut. Detectives began interviewing employees of the Cedar Lodge Motel, where the three victims had been staying just before their deaths on February 15, 1999. And I got the Prince song running through my head right now, so forgive me for that one, folks. One of those employees was Carrie. But he was not considered a suspect at that point because he had no criminal history and remained calm during the police interview. Do you need the man to be psychotic before you take notice? Well, this is California, and they, they have interviewed Charlie Manson and Richard Ramirez, so the bar set pretty high. Oh, and, and Kemper. Kemper was uh Kemper was out there. Uh, the Menendez brothers were by this time? Yeah. Oh, yeah, like a decade earlier with Menendez. So. Yeah, yeah, because they, they, uh, they went and saw the Michael Keaton Batman, which came out in 89. Yeah. It, it was August 20th, 89 of the Menendez murders. Right. Batman was still in the theaters grossing millions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that was a pretty high bar to, uh, to be crazy while you're being interviewed by the police. On July 22nd, 1999, when the decapitated body of Yosemite Institute employee, 
Joy Ruth Armstrong, a 26-year-old naturalist, was found. Eyewitnesses said they saw a Blue 72 International Scout parked outside the cabin where she was staying prior the day prior on July 21st. The detectives traced this vehicle to Stainer, which led him becoming the prime suspect in their case. FBI agents John Bowles and Jeff Reineck found Stainer staying at the Laguna del Sol Nudist Resort in Wilton, where he was arrested and taken to Sacramento for questioning. Ah, please, please let him be clothed when they took him in. Please let him be clothed. Because, you know, you don't want to get arrested at a nudist colony not wearing clothes. It'd be a couple of embarrassing situations on your hands. During these interrogations, Stainer shocked the agents when he confessed not only to Armstrong's decapitation, but to the murders of Peloso and the Sons and the sending of the map finding Julie Sons' body. His vehicle yielded evidence proving his link to Armstrong. Following his arrest, Stainer was suspected of being responsible for other homicides and disappearances in addition to his four known victims. Given that similar offenders started their violent crimes at far younger ages, investigators have stated that they think Stainer may have additional victims. Possibility. Yep. 28-year-old Patricia Marie Patty Hicks Dahlstrom last contacted her family in September of 1982 after relocating to Merced from Washington State. She had joined a religious following, the San Anda Apostolic Church, founded by cult leader Donald Gibson. Hicks was one of the group members who were detained in December of 1980. An investigation into the religious organization revealed that sexual assaults had been carried out under various religious pretenses. Gibson was put on trial in September 1981 and was found guilty of four sex offenses. Afterward, Hicks decided to leave the cult and was last seen by her roommate taking public transportation to the Yosemite National Park. A severed arm and hand were recovered from Yosemite on June 28, 1983, and by 88, a skull was also discovered near the original scene. In April of 21, genetic genealogy identified the remains as being those of Hicks. Stainer is known to have been acquainted with Gibson at the time of his 1981 trial, which he attended. Authorities believe Stainer may have chosen to kill Hicks in retaliation for her testimony against Gibson. On December 26, 90, Stainer's paternal uncle, 42-year-old Jesse Gerald Jerry Stainer, with whom Carrie lived in Merced, was shot to death in his house with his own shotgun. The murder was never solved, and Stainer became a suspect only after his arrest. Perry later claimed that Jesse molested him around the same time that Stainer was kidnapped when he was 11. In October 1994, severed human hands were found near the New Mullins Reservoir. On December 13th of that year, a headless and handless torso was found in a cluster of trees off Camp 9 Road near Vallecito, California, by a group of boys who were burning yard debris. A forensic pathologist determined that the detached hands belonged to the body. 
In December 95, the remains were identified as belonging to 24-year-old Sherilyn Levon Murphy. Her head has never been found. The FBI investigated Murphy's homicide to determine if there was a link between Stainer due to the similarities between her death and the murder of Armstrong. The authorities also reviewed the case of 34-year-old Denise Smith, whose decomposed body was discovered in a 50-gallon burn barrel off Jacksonville Road near Don Pedro Reservoir in December of 94. 40-year-old Michael Larry Mike Madden planned to meet friends at the Sandbar Flat camp- Campground in the Stanislaus National Forest near Sonora, California on August 10, 96 for camping and fishing. On the day, he left his family's home at around 5 a.m. and he was never seen again. At 2 a.m. on August 12, 96, Madden's companion showed up to the predetermined spot but they found no sign of him. Authorities have considered that Madden may have been a victim of Stainer who committed his crimes near Yosemite National Park, 75 miles east of Sonora. Now, Carey was tried in federal court for Armstrong's murder since it occurred on federal land. Uh, y'all. To avoid a possible death sentence, he pleaded guilty to premeditated first-degree murder, felony first-degree murder, kidnapping resulting in death, and attempted aggravated sexual abuse resulting in death. That's a tongue twister for you. Now, during the sentencing hearing, he stunned the courtroom and he suddenly broke down in tears and apologized. I wish I could take it back, but I can't, he said. I wish I could tell you why I did such a thing, but I don't even know myself. I'm so sorry. I wish there was a reason, but there isn't. It's senseless. Leslie Armstrong, Armstrong's mother, started crying as she listened to Stainer and said afterward that she believed his apology was genuine. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. He pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to the other murders in state court. He also admitted that he had intended to murder two Finnish girls in in 98, but fled when the girl's advisor arrived. His lawyers claimed that Stainer, that the Stainer family had a history of sexual abuse and mental illness, manifesting itself not only in the murders, but also his obsessive compulsive disorder and his request to be provided with child pornography in return for his confession. Yeah, that's not going to fly. You, you can't ask for kitty porn when you're given a confession. Dr. Jose Arturo Silva testified that Carrie had obsessive compulsive disorder, mild autism, and paraphilia. Okay, I don't know that one. He was nevertheless found sane and convicted of three counts of first degree murder with special circumstances in one count of kidnapping by a jury on August 12, 2002. After being sentenced to death for the brutal killings, Stainer had been housed at the Adjustment Center on death row at San Quentin State Prison in California since 2002. Stainer remains on death row, though there have been no executions in California since a 2006 court ruling over flaws, hold on here folks, flaws in the administration of capital punishment in the state. So he's still alive and kicking. 
doesn't get his last meal, but he gets three hots in the cot. Um, one scene in the uh, TV movie, there was, they were all sitting at the kitchen table. I can't remember if it was before or after Stephen came back, but, um, they asked where, I guess it was probably after he came back though, but, um, they asked, like, somebody asked, like, where Carrie was, and somebody responded that he was over, like, in Yosemite. Yeah, I think considering what happened later, right? It was right. Like, pretty, you know, freaky. <laughs> and you know, I've seen Carrie been called the Yosemite Killer because of his approximation to yes. Yosemite, and that's where his victims were taken from or near. And also, uh, um, Stephen is actually also in the scene where. Um, he comes back. Yeah. He's one of the yeah, police officers. Right. Escorting like himself. I know the documentary I watch, um, they had like people reading their statements and Cora Nemec, who played Steven in the miniseries, was reading Steven's dialogue in the uh mini in the uh, documentary. Yeah, I just got the bought the T V movie not that long ago because... Yeah, I I've seen it back then, but it was pretty. I watched it because it was one of those we were watching it at night, and my stepdad made the comment that, well, that would have been like if my, you know, my father when he kidnapped me and I came back older. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I'm sitting there going, uh, "Nah, I probably would have found a way to run before that," but you know, okay, Dad. Yeah, and also, like, the circumstances also, like, were, I mean, different, too, because... Right. You already knew your dad. Right. If he had told you that, like, your mom didn't want you to, like, you know, or, like, couldn't afford you, that's been... That's weird it sounds, like, a little less believable than somebody you never saw before, Journey's co-founding guitarist and songwriter died. Yeah. George Tickner. Yeah. Don't stop believing. And Alan Arkin this week too. So that was that. Yeah, Alan Arkin. Um there was just one there was one that I I just saw besides Alan Arkin. Um I'm spacing. I'm spacing bad right now. I have to put it up on the Facebook page because right, I, I can't take either. Man, I just remember there was one that I wanted to say, and now I forgot what it was. Man, I'm losing it. I'm I'm spending too much time. Well, not too much time. I mean, I've been more engaged this time around with my homework, so my my professor likes it. Understandable. Yeah, but I just I can't for the life of me I'm having trouble writing a history podcast, so like I'll take a couple of weeks off 
from here. Well, right. I mean, I I do. Uh, the the battlefields that I missed in April are about four hours from you when I leave. So I'm thinking about swinging through and seeing them. I just got to check on the the times on uh, Mount Pelier's operations. I'm debating if I want to go there or not. That would be cool. Yeah, go see me some James Madison, you know. Yeah. Uh, We're going to wrap this one up, folks. Uh, You know where to find us. Find us on your podcasting. Join the Facebook group. And for Killers, Cults, Nutjobs, I'm Scotty J. Say goodnight, Monica. Goodnight, Monica.